This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court's docket this year has an unusually large number of immigration cases that run the gamut from boilerplate to blockbuster. One of the cases in the blockbuster category involves a politically charged issue that could bolster the government's ability to deport undocumented immigrants quickly after their asylum bids are rejected. My guest is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. So, Steve, tell us about the main issues in the case. June, in a term full of of big immigration cases, I actually think this is the sleeper. So there's a whole category of non-citizens who are placed in something called expedited removal. And the idea is when the government picks up someone right after they surreptitiously enter the country um, and when they haven't been here for that long, the law ought to treat them as if they were stopped at the border. That, you know, we shouldn't necessarily reward folks who cross illegally just for the fact that they weren't captured right on site. In this context, as the term suggests, expedited removal means a much more streamlined process before they are removed from the country. And it also dramatically circumscribes the kinds of claims that folks in this status are allowed to make. So with regard to asylum seekers, for example, there's nowhere near the amount of review of a claim that, you know, someone who fled persecution in another country actually credibly did so, or that if they were returned to their home country, they face a meaningful risk of violence. For, you know, a long time, the Supreme Court has operated under the presumption that individuals who are physically present on U.S. soil, whatever their immigration status, are protected by the Constitution. But this case is actually raising whether that's still true and whether the court still believes that in the context of perhaps the most important constitutional protection, the right of habeas corpus. Basically, the long term of this case is Congress in 1996 took away from the federal courts the power to hear habeas petitions, basically collateral attacks on the underlying government detention from non-citizen immigrants who are in so-called expedited removal proceedings. And the argument in these cases is that by not allowing for habeas, there's no meaningful opportunity for someone with a valid asylum claim whose claim is denied in this expedited context to then challenge that denial in court. When the Third Circuit heard this issue four years ago, it said, nope, the suspension clause of the Constitution, which protects the right of habeas corpus, does not apply to undocumented immigrants who are in expedited removal. And late last year, the Ninth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court in San Francisco, disagreed, creating a circuit split. Tell us a little bit about the plaintiff who says he fears persecution in his country. Thrasajim is a Sri Lankan, and he's a Tamil which basically means that he is in a minority group that has been the subject of significant persecution from the Sri Lankan government. Of course, there's been some violence on the part of this group as well. He entered the United States surreptitiously in California. He was picked up shortly after he entered, and he basically is trying to challenge the government's denial of his asylum claim on the ground that he credibly fears persecution or other forms of inappropriate treatment if he is returned to Sri Lanka. The district court concluded that it lacked the ability to hear his habeas petition because of the statute Congress passed in 1996 and the Ninth Circuit reversed, disagreeing with the Third Circuit and holding that the suspension clause applies to anyone on U.S. soil, that whether or not your detention is lawful, which is what the courts will ultimately decide, Congress can't cut the courts out of the loop entirely when it comes to reviewing these kinds of immigration cases. And June, one of the points the Ninth Circuit made, which I think is a pretty good one, is the most important 
important Supreme Court case interpreting the suspension clause and discussing the right of habeas corpus is the Boumediene case from 2008, where the Supreme Court, in the context of the non-citizen enemy combatants detained at Guantanamo, held that even they are protected by the suspension clause and are entitled to judicial review of their detention. And the Ninth Circuit basically said, listen, if that's true for non-citizen enemy combatants at Guantanamo who have never had any connection to the United States, it should be true for undocumented immigrants who, whatever their legal status, are physically present on U.S. soil at the time of their apprehension. So since 1996, is the Ninth Circuit the only court to say that that provision of the law is unconstitutional? June, the Ninth Circuit's the only court to hold that that provision is unconstitutional as applied in this context. But, I mean, the reality is there are dozens and dozens of cases in which district courts have reached the merits in this context. It's only really, I think, in response to the Third Circuit decision from 2016 that there's been this renewed focus on the constitutional question. So I don't think that there's a clear weight of authority on this question that necessarily tips in the government's favor. I think what it really is, is this case is a referendum on the Guantanamo decision, the Boumediene decision from 2008. That was five to four. You know, Justice Kavanaugh, who replaced Justice Kennedy, Kennedy had, was the swing vote in that decision. Kennedy wrote the majority opinion. I think Justice Kavanaugh is arguably not as sympathetic toward habeas in this context as Justice Kennedy was. So it's another one of these cases where the Kennedy to Kavanaugh shift could have real consequences for the doctrine and where, in contrast to Guantanamo, where we're only talking about 40 detainees who are still there, now we're talking about tens of thousands of individuals in the United States who would be covered by this ruling. I've been talking to Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School about a high-stakes immigration case at the Supreme Court involving expedited removal. So, Steve, explain why that 2008 Guantanamo case still seems to be getting so much attention and criticism. The Supreme Court's decision in the Boumediene case with regard to the Guantanamo detainees really has been something of a lightning rod. You know, Attorney General Bill Barr, in his, I think, widely noticed speech to the Federal Society back in November, went out of his way to go after that decision, even though it's hard to see how those cases are really at the center of the government's agenda these days, as an example of what he called judicial activism, as an example of, you know, progressive justices running amok. And Barr's argument was that it was wrong for the courts to insert themselves into the middle of military operations by basically saying, yes, there's a role for the federal courts in reviewing the detention of enemy combatants. But, you know, June, whatever folks think about that debate, what's so fascinating to me about the case the Supreme Court set to hear at the end of February, the Thurasagium case, is that, you know, these are not enemy combatants. These are not individuals who have any kind of criminal record or any special connection to terrorism. You know, these are folks who at least if their allegations are true, are simply looking for a better life and are fleeing persecution in other countries. And so long as we have a law on the books that says, you know, you're entitled to asylum if certain things are true, the question is, who's going to be the ultimate arbiter of these individuals' asylum claims? The individual immigration hearing officer for whom all the incentives are increasingly pointing toward denying claims or an independent Article Three court? And that's really the stakes of this case. And June, just to sort of add one more piece of context to it, all of this is happening while the Trump administration is actually trying to expand the category of non-citizens who can be subjected to expedited removal, where the consequences of this case could become even bigger. What is the federal government's argument to the Supreme Court justices to get them to overturn the Ninth Circuit's decision? 
So the government actually makes a series of arguments. And I think the principal argument the government makes is that immigration cases were never meant to be within the ambit of the suspension clause. That in contrast to executive detention, like the Guantanamo cases, you know, in this context, individuals like Thurasagiam, they're not really objecting to their detention. They're trying to use habeas as a way of objecting to their removal, where, you know, they won't necessarily be detained in their home countries. They just won't be able to stay in the United States. So, A big part of the government's argument is that, in general, the suspension clause just doesn't apply when non-citizens are trying to collaterally attack removal proceedings. But the government also says that, in any event, the suspension clause is satisfied, at least in this context, by the limited but not zero review that these kinds of non-citizens receive of their claims, as I said, through this immigration hearing officer, through this asylum officer. But I think, you know, a lot's going to rise and fall in the first part of that argument on whether there's a majority of the justices who agree that removal of non-citizens, deportation proceedings, were not what habeas was meant to protect at the founding and is not what habeas is meant to protect today. So the justices don't have to overrule precedent. They don't have to overrule Boumediene. They don't have to overrule Boumediene, although I do think, you know, Boumediene really does lurk over these cases. You know, June, as I think the the respondents argued at the cert stage and in the Ninth Circuit, there are a lot of older Supreme Court cases that are ruling in the government's favor here, wouldn't require overruling, but would create some tension where the Supreme Court historically has basically sort of assumed that habeas applied in this context. And the court has repeatedly suggested that undocumented immigrants, you know, because they're physically on U.S. soil, are protected by at least some of the Constitution. So I think there is a way for the justices to rule for the government without overruling any of their precedents. I do think they would have to give at least some of those precedents a haircut. And, you know, I think that's part of what Thurassa GM's lawyers are likely to argue in their, you know, merits brief, which I think is going to be filed shortly um, and at the oral argument next month. Do we know what this court's record in immigration is? Or is it too soon to tell? Well, I mean, I think, you know, June, this case does come as part of a a much larger uptick in the court's immigration docket. I mean, this is the same term the court is hearing the DACA case, which is one of the most important immigration cases it's heard in a long time. You know, we're just coming off of the travel ban case. The court has had um, applications for emergency relief from the government in two different asylum cases. There's the border wall. So, you know, immigration, I think, is definitely a dominant theme um, of this term and of the last couple terms in the Roberts Court. I guess my hesitation is just that I think this is a different kind of immigration case, because unlike all of those other cases where the fight is over the substance of immigration policy um, and whether, for example, the president is acting consistently or inconsistently with the statutes Congress has passed and with the other potentially applicable constitutional provisions, this is a case that's really about the role of the courts in immigration cases in general in a way that the other cases are not. And so, you know, especially with the Trump administration proposing to expand the number of immigrants who would fall into this expedited removal category, you know, I think this is really a case that's much more front and center about judicial review, where immigration is simply the foil, Um, whereas I think the other cases are more about the substance of our immigration policies. And that's why I think it's really a sleeper case for the Supreme Court's current term. I mean, obviously, folks are fixated on, you know, the abortion case, the Second Amendment case, the, you know, Trump tax subpoena cases. 
But, you know, there aren't that many cases the Supreme Court hears where it's asked a fundamental question about whether the Constitution requires some role for the courts at all. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, how the court handles this case actually could have broader, longer-term ramifications than any ruling it hands down on any of these substantive immigration cases. So after Boumediene, many, many Guantanamo detainees brought habeas corpus petitions. Some people thought, oh, the floodgates were open. Is that likely to be an argument here from the federal government that this would open the floodgates to more litigation? So I think, you know, the federal government in its brief, at least in its opening brief, um, doesn't sort of talk so much about those floodgates, June, but it does suggest that, you know, a requirement of the kind of judicial review for which the respondent is arguing um, would basically sort of take the expedited out of expedited removal, that, you know, Congress and the president should be allowed to streamline these proceedings without judicial interference, that requiring courts to actually review at least some of these cases um, would, you know, do exactly what the statute was meant to prevent, which is, you know, slow down the process in these cases, give these individuals a longer period of time in the United States before they might ultimately be removed. Um, I guess, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to be necessarily the, the, the clincher, even if the government wins, that I think, you know, from the court's perspective, um, the resource problem is not really that big of a concern in contrast to the, I think, the broader concern about whether this decision, if they rule for the government, sets a broader precedent with regard to the rights of undocumented immigrants more generally. Um, and I think, you know, it's not hard to see, June, how you know, a broader constitutional debate over what kinds of constitutional protections um, undocumented immigrants might have um, is not only, you know, in the offing, but is one that's going to be very fraught given the current political climate. While we're on this case, let's revisit for a moment the Guantanamo cases. There are not very many prisoners there, and it's hard to believe that those cases are still going on. Yeah, I mean, June, this, this all comes, you know, shortly after what was the, the 18th anniversary on January um, 11th of the opening of Guantanamo. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's it's in one sense, I think it's it's revealing that Guantanamo is no longer part of almost any news story because, you know, those cases, those issues really have largely faded from public view. But it's not because anything has ended. I mean, there are still 40 detainees at Guantanamo. There are still, you know, ongoing military commission pretrial proceedings um, in three major cases, including the 9-11 trial, including, you know, the trial of the alleged um, USS Cole bombing mastermind. And, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about this immigration case is it, you know, it provides an excuse to sort of reflect on the implications of what the Supreme Court held in 2008. Um, you know, Justice Scalia had written, I think, quite provocatively in his dissent in Boumediene in 2008 that more Americans will be killed as a result of that decision. I'm not sure that's come to fruition. I mean, I think the, the ultimate consequences of Boumediene um, were pretty mixed. Um, so, you know, there were uh, in the years after Boumediene, I think June 61, Guantanamo detainees whose habeas petitions were litigated all the way to a final judgment. Um, of those 61, 30 prevailed um, and 29 lost. Uh, I'm sorry, and 31 lost. It would help if I could do math, um, right? Which is, you know, I mean, the definition of a pretty of a pretty mixed verdict. And of the ones who prevailed, you know, the Obama administration found ways to transfer them either to their home countries or to third countries that would take them. So, you know, I'm not sure we've seen the the dire consequences that dissenters warned about. Um, on the flip side, you know, one can also look at the fact that there are still 40 detainees at Guantanamo, 
that only 30 of the 61 prevailed and say, you know, all of that so that there could be 30 habeas victories. Um, that seems like a lot of work for a very sort of modest outcome. So I think the, you know, the, the, where I sort of end up is I think the verdict on Guantanamo is very much still a mixed one. But the more important point for present purposes is it hasn't gone away. And so, you know, as the Supreme Court sits to hear argument in this major but different case about habeas and the role of courts in reviewing executive branch conduct, you know, I do think it's important not to lose sight of the ongoing implications of the last time the court did that. Thanks so much, Steve. That's Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can listen to all the latest legal topics in the news anytime on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern time right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.